Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we'll be talking about things to know before your next birth. Jennifer Margulis has spent years looking at hospital birth practices. She explains why just going with the flow and blindly trusting the system can backfire, and what you should be doing now to help you have a smoother and happier birth experience. Stay tuned. This episode of Birthful is brought to you by Natural Breastfeeding and their free quick start video. Created by breastfeeding experts Dr. Teresa Nesbitt and Nancy Moorbacher, this video will show you what you need to know to get started with natural breastfeeding. Go watch it at naturalbreastfeeding.com. This episode is also brought to you by Joyce Havinga of Birth Ambassador Doula and Birth Services from Larchmont, New York. Find out more at birthambassador.com. The Birthful Podcast. Talking to maternity pros to inform your intuition. Hello, mamas and mamas-to-be. As always, thank you for listening and for all the love you give the show. It really makes me happy to read the reviews that you leave on iTunes, which, by the way, help get the show in front of more mamas because of iTunes ranking algorithms and other things I don't quite understand, but they do help. So please leave a review. Like, for example, check out the review that Mel Whip left recently calling the podcast an invaluable resource for parents and maternity professionals and saying that she learned so much from the podcast and that she will continue to listen to all the episodes and recommend the Birthful podcast to all her friends, family, and clients. She also wrote, quote, thank you so much, Adriana. You are helping me be a better mother and birth worker. Wow. Thank you, Melwhip, for that mood-boosting review and for being such an awesome supporter of the show. That totally makes my day. And if you agree with Mel that this podcast is helping you be a better mother or a better birth worker, then why not buy me a virtual cup of tea? Go to patreon.com slash birthful. Pledges start at $1 per month, which is only a quarter per episode and way more helpful than a baby wipe warmer. Or if you pledge $5 per month, then you get extra rewards, like, for example, being the sponsor of a birthful episode, which is what Joyce Havinga of Birth Ambassador Doula and Birth Services did this week. Joyce also hosts a free positive birth movement group for new moms and moms-to-be every first Friday of the month in Larchmont, New York. That is fantastic, Joyce. Thank you so much for your support. I wish Larchmont was closer so I could go hang out with your group. Even though I'm not a new mom or a mom-to-be, I'd just go hang out and support you back. So remember, to learn all the fabulous ways you, almighty mama, can support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash birthful. Seriously, go check it out today. Thank you. All right. So moving on with the show, I have Jennifer Margulis to talk about what you need to know before your next birth, which could also mean your first birth, right? Jennifer is an award-winning investigative journalist, nonfiction book author, and Fulbright grantee. She is the co-author of The Vaccine-Friendly Plan, Dr. Paul's Safe and Effective Approach to Immunity and Health from Pregnancy Through Your Child's Teen Years, which is coming out later this year. Uh, and she wrote that with Paul Thomas, Dr. Paul Thomas. And she's also author of Your Baby, Your Way, Taking Charge of Your Pregnancy, Childbirth, and Parenting Decisions for a Happier, Healthier Family, which came out last year. 
Her work has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Smithsonian Magazine, Miss Magazine, Moore Magazine, Oh, the Oprah Magazine, and dozens of other magazines, newspapers, and websites. She also produces audio features for Jefferson Public Radio and works as an editor and writing consultant for a select group of highly successful writers. Basically, Jennifer has spent years doing research on hospital birth practices and children's health, so you don't have to. Jennifer, welcome. It's such a delight to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was very excited because, so I, we were talking a little bit before the show started, and I was commenting that I usually have, my guests are usually either birth professionals or I do birth stories with moms. They come and tell me their birth stories. But you come at this from a completely different angle, which is, you know, from a parent perspective, but also a journalist. And you how did you land into this world of babies and kids and motherhood in your work? Um, well, let's see. I was pretty naive when I got pregnant for the first time. And um, I had um, I had been considering having a home birth, but we didn't have insurance that would pay for it. And my husband felt very strongly that we would be so much safer in the hospital than we would be at home. And a lot of things happened during that birth um, that a lot of things went wrong. It was a it was a very difficult experience. And I came out of what I thought was going to be sort of the most transformative experience of my life, feeling like my body didn't work and like I had sort of done everything wrong and that I kind of couldn't have a baby. And I was really baffled and surprised, and it was just a really hard transition into motherhood. And I think what happened was I sort of, I, I got very interested in what had happened to me personally and around my birth experience in the hospital, and it made me start um, kind of a lifelong journey of investigating hospital birthing practices and also getting very, very interested in children's health and in all of the factors that play on moms in America. So it was, I mean, it's kind of a typical story, right? You have your own experience and that kind of informs your work. Um, but that's what happened. And that daughter who was born is now 16 years old. Um, so I've been investigating birth practices and childhood health for about, uh, not really 16 years, for about 14 years now. Tell me a little bit more about what you found out because you were like that takes a lot of courage and I'm so glad you did this of being a place where you're kind of you know postpartum kind of down kind of questioning whether your body worked or not that's not a happy like energetic place to go and venture and try to figure out what made it so yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because so I have a PhD in English and American studies, and I'm so I'm very highly educated, and I'm somebody who likes to find out everything about a subject, but I had never thought about sort of, you know, really investigating, really looking into birth practices. I sort of like, you've you heard this probably from so many people, I just kind of trusted the system and trusted that my doctors and, you know, and midwives and whoever would kind of we're doing all of the homework for me. And I remember when my daughter, I feel like she was about four months old, but I called a friend of mine. I was living in Atlanta, Georgia at the time um, where, you know, things are, are there. There's a lot of difficulties in Atlanta. I think women don't tend to be super empowered in Georgia. If I can say that as a sweeping statement, that might be a little unfair, but I think in my experience, it was certainly true. Um, 
you know, like I was told that home birth was illegal and I was told by, you know, the hospital quote unquote lost our placenta. And I was, you know, repeatedly, I was denied any food. I wasn't allowed to drink water during labor, all these things. And I said, I called my best friend lived in Oregon, which is where I live now, where things I think are a little bit more open in the birth world. And again, I'm making generalizations, but I called um, her very good friend was a birth professional. She was a, um, a, an extremely highly skilled and experienced home birth midwife. And I said, I wanted to process my birth with her. And I said, but if I hadn't been in the hospital, you know, I probably would have died, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And of course, what, you know, she explained to me is she said, Jennifer, you know, an animal in nature who feels threatened closes back up and tries again later. Because of course, I mean, my, I was in a situation where, first of all, the hospital wouldn't admit me. They said that my amniotic fluid hadn't broke, my, 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 um, my food, I hadn't broken my water. My water hadn't broken. And my husband said, but it was a, there was a gush of water and it smelled like um, salt. It smelled like egg whites. And they said, oh, you probably ruptured. She, she probably has a ruptured bladder. And if we don't do a speculum exam, you know, she could die basically. I mean, it was like these bullying practices that went on and on and on. Um, And, you know, my husband, who's this very mild-mannered, quiet, calm person, but who was nervous about having a baby, was got started getting very upset. And it turns out they had one hospital bed ready, and they had it was a full moon, and there were a lot of people giving birth, and they they wanted to find a reason not to admit me into the hospital, which would have been wonderful in retrospect. I wish that I could have gone home. But instead of doing a very simple litmus test, they wanted to do a speculum exam. And I was, like I said, very highly educated, though extremely naive. And I knew that the last thing I wanted, I was in active labor. I was having contractions every two minutes. and But it was kind of those early irregular contractions. And I didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I said to them, I was refusing the speculum exam. And that's when you know all of the arguing and fighting and um, kind of, you know, disruption happened. And I literally like my body just closed down. And my so my friend in Oregon, who's a midwife, um, you know, said, you know, when an animal feels threatened, they close back up again. And that was kind of a moment of truth for me. And it was sort of the catalyst of thinking, oh, maybe what I had been told wasn't right. Maybe I didn't have to have these bleeding hemorrhoids. Maybe I shouldn't have been bullied into getting an epidural that I knew I didn't want and I knew I didn't need. You know, maybe the fact that they wouldn't turn down the epidural after they promised me that they would so that I would be able to feel things and that I had a leg that was numb. I mean, my leg was numb for like five days and it wasn't, it didn't go back to feeling normal for like weeks afterwards. So I was obviously being overdosed with anesthesia, right? Um, Mm. You know, maybe all of these things were systematic failures. They weren't my body not able to do what, you know, women in my family have done for generations and generations. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It does. Um, And that distinction, I I think that's something that a lot of women, unfortunately, can relate to the fact that they trusted the system and the system let them down. Yeah. So if we are going to talk about, you know, things to do before you have your next baby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, Which was one of which is our sort of our topic for today. I mean, I think the first thing to talk about is to is that, you know, you have to you have to sort of take charge. You have to you have to 
do your own research. You have to think for yourself. You have to ask the right questions. And I'm always amazed. I interview, you know, dozens of people for the articles that I write. And uh, so I interview birth professionals. I interview doctors. I interview midwives and doulas and moms. And, you know, when I come across very often, like I just interviewed a 37-year-old woman who had her first baby at the farm um, where, you know, um, in Tennessee, and I was so amazed and impressed. And I said, how did you make that decision? And it turns out she was actually living in Shanghai, China. She knew she wanted a natural birth. That's all she knew. So she decided since she knew she wanted a natural birth that she was going to read absolutely everything she could about natural birth. So she downloaded Ina May Gaskin's um, Guide to Childbirth. And she was impressed by their statistics, and she loved Ina May's writing. And she said to her husband, well, why should we reinvent the wheel? Let's just go to the farm to have our baby. <laughs> and what an amazing young person. You know, I, I mean, she was a little bit of an older mom, right? She is 37. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, there were so many roadblocks that got put in her way. And she was obviously had a strong and determined personality to begin with, right? But so impressed and i've you know i've met hundreds i mean of women who have managed to really have wonderful experiences both in the hospital and you know outside of the hospital either at a freestanding birth clinic or at home and the, the what i would say categorizes those moms whether they're first time moms or whether they're having their third or their fourth child is that they really work hard to empower themselves and to educate themselves even before they get pregnant yeah I always say that pregnancy is, and, and even before that, is very early, 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 super early labor, that the things that you do then make it quicker and nicer and smoother at the end. Absolutely. I think that's true. And and what kind of, you know, your psychological state when you go into it also does make a big difference. So if you understand, profoundly understand that pregnancy is a state of good health, I mean, so many difficult mechanisms have to come together to get pregnant. What's amazing is that we are able to get pregnant, not, you know, that it's hard to get pregnant. Is it, It's actually people don't realize kind of how incredible our bodies are. And so when we've achieved that state of pregnancy, we are in optimal health. You know, we are reproducing, we're continuing our species. And everything that we do while we're pregnant makes a difference, you know, not only for our, our the long-term health of our baby, but also for how our labor and delivery and postpartum period are going to go. And, you know, it's, you don't, you don't climb Mount Everest without training. You don't run a marathon <laughs> without training. And so, you know, training yourself physically and psychologically is a really, really good idea. Absolutely. No. And advocating for yourself and, and getting into that mindset of taking charge. I love it. So what's another thing moms need to do before they, they have a birth? Well, you know, I think part of it is that, you know, it, it, there's lots of choices in childbirth, right? But I think one of the most important things I was, I was talking to an obstetrician who had her first baby in the hospital, and then she had her two other babies um, in the bathtub of her house uh, in Los Angeles. And, you know, and I asked her, one of the biggest problems in America right now is our cesarean section rate. Um, we have at least 600,000 C-sections a year are unnecessary. So if you want, if you're not worried about that and you don't, you know, you're not trying for a vaginal birth or you don't, you sort of just, you know, you just want a healthy baby kind of as a blanket statement, then, you know, you can go ahead and do things the way that everybody does them, sort of kind of give over your power to your doctor and your birth providers. If you want to avoid 
unnecessary abdominal surgery that sets your baby up for a lot of lifelong health problems, um, then you need to make sure you find a provider who doesn't do too many C-sections. So what this um, obstetrician was saying, her name is Jennifer Lang, she said, find out what your obstetricians or your midwives statistics are. They need to be totally transparent with you. They need to tell you how many babies they've delivered, what their C-section rates are, what their vaginal birth rates are, what their VBAC, vaginal birth after cesarean rates are, if you're trying for that. Because one of the most important factors in how you give birth is whether your attendants, meaning your doctor or your midwives, are going to be there for you, believe in you, or whether they're going to push their own agenda. So, I mean, that's something else that I would tell parents is really important to do. And that's not easy. It's when you ask that question, already people start to bristle. So if your doctor won't tell you his or her C-section rate, don't go to that doctor. And I think that's really an important point to that can't be stressed enough. The fact that you need to feel comfortable with your provider. And if there are red flags when you're having prenatal meetings, then it's going to have a lot of red flags during the birth. That's absolutely right. And it's never too late to switch. I mean, so I would go to my OB in Atlanta and every time, first I actually started with the hospital midwives and they were so mean to me in the prenatal appointments that I switched to the doctors. I was going to a practice, I thought that the doctors would be gentler. I was going to a practice, the only practice that my insurance company, actually my insurance company would pay for one or two of two practices. So I didn't feel like I had a lot of choices. But literally after every appointment, I would sit in the parking lot with my husband and sob. Now, (laughs) that's not prenatal care. That's prenatal abuse. And But it's my fault that I didn't put two and two together and say, wow, these people are really damaging my self-esteem and making me feel so bad about this. You know, my whole life I wanted a baby. I was so delighted to be pregnant. I couldn't think of anything better in the world. And yet I was crying in the parking lot after every prenatal visit. At that point, somebody needed to say, okay, Jennifer, it's time to figure out what your real choices are. I mean, I had serious financial constraints. I was making $11,000 a year as a graduate student at Emory University, but I should not have let finances dictate my birth experience. And, you know, that was something else that I wish that I could help other people avoid. You think you have no choices, but you always have choices. And I think in terms, it's really important to say that in terms of the the financial aspect, sort of how we come to it and look at it, it's what's off kilter, right? Where we start off. Because if you make a comparison to how much we spend on weddings, if, you know, if you if we're married, (laughs) that there's no qualms in spending thousands of dollars on a photographer or on a cake, or that's normal. That's quote unquote what you just do. But then when this other monumental rite of passage in your life, you know, having a child comes along, then the money that's spent is spent more on things that you may not use end up using like or not needing necessarily like all those bouncy chairs and stroll you know the gear instead of making sure your experience during that day is the best that it can be 
Yes. And, you know, so, I mean, that's a really important point, I think. And, you know, it's not only being willing, it's a, it's a good lesson, right? Because you'll spend any amount of money, you'll go to the ends of the earth. I mean, if you can, if you possibly humanly can for your baby, like I, I interviewed another obstetrician who said, you know, I, he would talk to moms who were from the most impoverished part of the United States and they didn't have two nickels to rub together, but they would spend hundreds of dollars on prenatal vitamins, which is something else we can talk about. Um, prescription prenatal vitamins because they wanted to do sort of the best by their baby. But what we don't realize is that the best by your baby when you're pregnant is getting the best care for you. And the best by your baby is also getting the best labor support. So when I hear people say, I can't afford a doula, I mean, first of all, I've never met a doula in America who wasn't willing to find some way for a mom who really wanted her or him to afford it. Meaning like, I don't think that doulas are usually in it for the money grabbing no. <laughs> because they're not making a lot of money. I mean, in my experience, and I could be wrong, Adriana, you know much more about this than I do. But in my experience, people who are, are being doulas are there because they so genuinely want to be a support for women. So if you feel like you can't afford it, you can always try to find a way. Um, but, you know, but it's a it's a it's a problem um, that we don't we don't think of it because we don't think we have to. We think that we people have that covered for us, and unfortunately, that's sort of a, the myth of modern maternity care in the United States. Yeah, yeah, and I find that there are there is a doula for every woman who wants one, um, and there's also an importance to realize the value of a doula because. I also think you've got to like make an effort, even if you have two, you don't have much money. You've got to at least pay, you know, parking costs or some like, you know, because doulas do do it for feeding their souls and helping you out. But at the same time, they've got to feed their kids, too. So I see it from both points of view. Absolutely. I, I was just saying that, you know, money shouldn't stand in the way. And also, not all doulas are created equal. I mean, not all home birth midwives are created equal. I, you know, you, you also need to find somebody who's going to be the right person to be there with you. And that may take several, you, you might have to go through several different people to find the one that's really going to support you. Because I also hear stories over and over of women who, you know, I interviewed a woman also last week who really also wanted to have a natural childbirth in the hospital. And she ended up really getting kind of duped into getting an epidural she had her doctor's um colleague came in and said oh come on just do this and you know her and then she found out later that her doctor had actually sent her colleague in to kind of get her to to get her to do it and from the minute she entered that hospital she, they had the nurses had been saying to her well don't you want an epidural come on this is too hard this is too hard you need an epidural and she had hired a doula but the doula wasn't advocating for her and in retrospect you know one thing she said is that she she realized like she was very clear that she wanted she did not want an epidural, right? So she and her doula needed to sit down and talk about, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to keep the labor and delivery nurses from from telling you that this is something you have to do? So, you know, it's not it's not the magic pill to have a doula. You also have to figure out what you want, how you want your birth to go, how you're going to make that happen. How are you going to make that happen? When we come back, Jennifer Margulis shares her insights. Stay with us. 
You may have noticed from the start of the show that we have a new sponsor. Yay, new sponsor! And I'm super excited because it's a product that I love, created by two ladies that I truly admire. I'm talking about Natural Breastfeeding's Quick Start video created by Dr. Teresa Nesbitt and Nancy Morbacher. Dr. Teresa and Nancy are world-renowned breastfeeding experts whom you may also remember from past podcast episodes. And if you haven't heard those, go listen to them. They have created a 38-minute quick start video that gives you everything you need to know to get started with natural breastfeeding. And best of all, they made it free. Absolutely free. If you're planning on breastfeeding or you recently got started, you need to watch this. Simply go to naturalbreastfeeding.com. That's naturalbreastfeeding.com to learn more. I highly recommend it. Go watch it. We're back. Here's Jennifer again. You know, it's not it's not the magic pill to have a doula. You also have to figure out what you want, how you want your birth to go, how you're going to make that happen. And you know, it's not just magical thinking. I mean, you can't just say, okay, I want this. Like you can't say I'm going to run a marathon because I want to. So I'll just run a marathon. You have to train for it. So some of the ways that you train for it. And, you know, these are things that people know, but they don't do. You can't sit at a desk job eight hours a day while you're pregnant for nine months and then expect to be able to like rock your birth, right? You need to be active. You need to be on your feet. You need to be getting as much exercise as you can. Um, and it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a CrossFit, you know, star or like the you, the women that you see sometimes, Right. But you have to be physically active because you're looking at a labor. My first labor lasted 22 hours. So you're looking at 22 hours of pretty hard exercise if that's the kind of birth you want to have. If you want to be in a hospital bed strapped to machines with an IV in your arm and with an epidural anesthesia, which, you know, we can talk about that too, but maybe I'm getting too far off topic. But if you start researching it, there are a lot of reasons to avoid those things. Um, then you don't have to do any of those things. But if you want to have a natural childbirth, you have to really be sure that you're in the best shape that you can be in physically. And and again, this is obviously common sense, but it's amazing how many people don't know this. You also have to pay attention to what you're eating because everything you're eating is playing a part in what is going to your baby. So it's really important to drink filtered water. It's really important to stay away from toxins and it's really important to eat real food. Granola bars and vitamin water are marketed as health foods, and those are not real foods. Those are packaged, edible, food-like substances, and they're not going to help you have a healthy pregnancy or a healthy baby. Real foods are whole foods as close to their natural state as possible, um, and that's what you need to be eating three times a day, not a pint of ice cream every night. And that is huge because it does affect you know, how you eat could put you at a higher risk for gestational diabetes, for preeclampsia, and that's going to really affect your care. It could mean the difference from just your baby being born when baby is ready, as opposed to being induced at 39 weeks because they're concerned about your, you know, sugar levels. Absolutely. I mean, there's no question that it could, it does. I mean, yeah. it, you know, it's like, if you, I remember when I was pregnant for the first time, a, a, a friend of mine saying, oh, this is so amazing. I can eat a pint of ice cream every night and I'm only gaining a pound a week. And I thought to myself, but why would you, would you feed a newborn a pint of ice cream every night? I mean, there's nothing wrong with ice cream and I don't want to make people feel bad for having, uh, you know, snacks and treats. That's not the point here. The point is that, I mean, you shouldn't be eating a pint of ice cream every single night. Pregnant and, or not. Yeah. <laughs> no matter who you are. 
and everything else that you eat, unless you make it yourself. I mean, there's lots of, there's ways to get around that. If you really need to have ice cream, you can make yourself, you can take frozen bananas, stick them in a blender and poof, you've got incredible banana ice cream, you know, like, and if you want to eat that every night, I'm with you. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, that's whole bananas uh, frozen. And they, you know, if you let them over ripen a little bit, they will be a sweet, they will satisfy your sweet tooth. Um but you know what, it's a, a biochemist from Cornell said it to me this way, a nutritionist and a biochemist. He said it to me this way. He said, he said, you know, I'm not concerned about what you're eating five, what Americans are eating 5% of the time. I'm concerned about what they're eating 95% of the time. So if 95% of your diet is really real, is healthy, real, whole foods, not stuff wrapped in plastic um, that can sit on a shelf for more than six months, then, you know, it's okay for you to have your ice cream. But the problem is, is that people, even the people advising us don't know what real food is. So what I like to tell people is go to your obstetrician's house and look in their refrigerator and look in their cupboard. <laughs> if they let you <laughs> ask well, them to see what they brought for lunch. <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean, what what they're what you're we the problem is Americans, all of us are not eating food. We're not eating optimally. So the vast majority of us don't really know what a whole food is if it you know hit us in the face. Um, and that's a problem. That's a systemic failure. So that's not something I want anyone to feel guilty about if you didn't eat right. I want people to understand that that's a system failure. You know, that's a problem with our culture that we need to collectively change. Mm. And, and, you know, we just have lots of endemic system failures. Um, and it, I think it goes back to being aware, being paying attention to everything that goes into your mouth, on your body, you know, what you wear, how you move, just being aware of who surrounds you. You were talking about the doulas. And it reminded me that that's just part of your birth team, but really the one doing the work and that has to show up is you. And then it's how are you going to show up to the birth? Are you going to show up and then just hand over your choices? Or are you going to show up and fight for them? And why should you have to fight for them during the birth? If you do your work ahead of time, then you will have providers that won't be bullying you into things you necessarily don't necessarily want. Absolutely. I think that's true. And, you know, it's, it's not easy. I mean, it's psychologically and physically, there's two components to this, right? And, you know, psychologically, especially women who have been abused as children, and if people who feel that they've been sort of disempowered as children, you know, it's a big thing to become a mom. And it's very possible that you are going to need to do some psychological work as well as, you know, all that good stuff like exercising and eating right. And to prepare yourself, I mean, one thing I did with my last, I have four kids and with my last birth, um, you know, I'm really a type A, get a lot of things done, be really stressed out, die young of a stress related illness kind of person. <laughs> I'm really not like the kind of Zen, I Ray, let's all be cool and meditate. I mean, I aspire, but I'm just not. And people who read my work and then meet me are sort of surprised at how uncrunchy granola I am <laughs> in real life. Um, but, you know, one of the things I did was I realized that I needed to do some psychological training. And so I really taught myself how to meditate. And I really started doing birth affirmations. And I really basically spent, you know, worked for nine months to brainwash myself into remembering that 
I'm doing something that, you know, women for hundreds of years in my family have done before and that I'm strong and that I'm powerful and all of that, even telling you about it now, if you could see the look on my face, it makes me kind of cringe because I'm just not the kind of person who goes around feeling strong and powerful. But it was really important to get into that kind of meditative state and to remind myself so that when things got tough, because they did, you know, you can pretend that it's not going to hurt, but I'm sorry for me anyway. (laughs) Labor and delivery hurts. I mean, I made more primal, bizarre, guttural sounding noises than I even knew could come out of my mouth, you know, and I was like, wait a second, I was teaching myself that this wasn't going to hurt, but this hurts, you know, so when the going gets tough, if you've reminded yourself for nine months how awesome and how powerful and how strong you are, you're going to have an easier time than if you've been reminded for nine months about how you're an accident waiting to happen and that your birth is risky and that you could die and your baby could die, which is unfortunately what a lot of doctors tell women. And they tell them that to coerce them into doing things their way, which is really unfortunate for the birthing woman. Because as you have researched and studied, you know, written about, there's a, that sort of double-edged sword of looking for the bottom line versus the care of women. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, so much of what we do in the birth um, system in the United States is is based on profitability and um, maximizing profitability and minimizing uh, legal liability. It has absolutely nothing to do with best practices. It has nothing to do with what we understand about the science. And Here's the best way to say it. What we know is that the most scientific birth is the least technological, right? I'm borrowing that phrase from an article in The Atlantic that was called that by um, Alice Drager. And the most technological, the most technological birth is the most profitable. So this is something that I explore at pretty great length in my book, Your Baby, Your Way, um, which really is about taking charge of your pregnancy and your childbirth decisions, right? Um, But is that we actually so much of what the doctors are recommending, whether they're aware of it or not, is because it helps the system be profitable, financially profitable. But it does not help you have a healthy baby, a good outcome and an empowering birth. Jennifer, in the 16 years or since you gave birth and the 14 years that you've been researching this, how what changes have you seen happen? How do we compare now to how we were then? Um, well, you know, that's an interesting question. So one of the one of the things that you can see is that um, although it's still absolutely a tiny fraction of people in the United States home birth in the last you know, basically since Ricky Lake's movie came out in 2008, um, The Business of Being Born, uh, more women have been using their feet to walk away from the hospitals and to walk away from the obstetricians. So we have seen a, an interesting rise in home birth in the United States. Unfortunately, you know, since uh, other than that, <laughs> since I've been researching this subject, things have actually gotten uh, probably gotten worse for pregnant women. And let me explain that. There are wonderful hospitals in this country. There are wonderful doctors. I actually think that the vast majority of doctors go into obstetrics because they want to help women give birth and because they love, you know, they love labor and delivery. Unfortunately, our system is so um, 
broken that once they get there, what ends up happening is just not what they had envisioned and not what's best for women and babies. So, you know, you probably know this, but we have the highest maternal mortality rate of any country in the industrialized world. We have among, we have a very, an ignominiously high infant mortality rate in the United States. And when you look at our outcomes compared to places in Scandinavia, especially countries like Norway and Sweden and Iceland, you see that we have we are really sort of underperforming on almost every rubric and there are many reasons for that but you know basically americans continue to get un to to be unhealthy we're seeing corresponding rises in all sorts of childhood diseases and i mean that's sort of the bad news the good news is that people are becoming more aware, I think, um, and they're starting to say that they don't want this. So that we have 600,000 unnecessary cesareans a year should be, you know, a, it's a national epidemic that people need to say no to. That we have, you know, one in four women going into child, going into their childbearing uh, years having all sorts of problems, including gestational diabetes or diabetes beforehand and autoimmune disorders. This is another national problem. This is not about, I mean, people say that women are, you know, too old or too fat or too poor, but none of this, I think, should be blamed on any individual women. I think what needs to be blamed is our healthcare system, you know, that is a profit-based system that does not guarantee coverage of people unless, you know, you do medicine the way that people want you to, which is not the best way to do it. So, I mean, we need a lot of changes. Unfortunately, I, I think that things are actually getting worse, not better. And that's in spite of the millions and millions of dollars that we throw at it because we spend more than anybody in in our health care and have those horrible maternal and infant mortality rates. Absolutely. Yes. And I mean, you saw there was a study that just came out a couple of weeks ago that the number three leading cause of death in the United States is hospital induced and iatrogenic, meaning caused by doctors. So doctor mistakes, medical error is the number three le leading cause of death in the U.S., but the CDC isn't tracking that. You know, we are absurdly now um, urging or requiring pregnant women to get up to three vaccines during pregnancy. So they're getting a flu shot. And if they have the misfortune of having a pregnancy that spans two seasons, flu seasons, the doctors will try to force them to have two flu shots. And then also getting the DTaP, um, right? So the shot against um, tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. We're doing that in the absence of any scientific information that shows that those shots are safe. You know, we're doing, the, unfortunately, I mean, this is a longer conversation and I know we're almost out of time, but a lot of our sort of practices are simply not evidence-based. And so what I would recommend is that people look to the countries. If you want to know what better practices are, look to the countries where women and children have the best outcomes. So look at Norway. Norway consistently ranks sort of number one in maternal fetal health, right? So what do they do in Norway? Well, for one thing, they have highly skilled midwives who are the ones um, who are the ones who follow women during late pregnancy and during childbirth. So if you're a hammer, everything is a nail. If you're an obstetrician and you're skilled at, at doing surgical birth, then you're going to want to do C-sections. That's just the way you've been trained. If you're a midwife who has delivered, you know, hundreds of or attended hundreds of um, 
and or thousands of vaginal births and seen that when the process is left alone and when women are healthy psychologically and physically, they're able to give birth vaginally Who and a, a midwife who understands that you need to be upright or you need to be on all fours or you need to be however your body wants to be during birth, not strapped to machines, then obviously you're going to have better outcomes. You know, we should not be doing continuous fetal monitoring during um during labor, we should not be depriving women of food and water. Women need to be upright and moving as much as they can. If they need pain medication, of course, things will change. But even then, it makes so much more sense to be having normal, healthy, low-risk childbirth be attended by people who understand that you know the vast majority of the time, birth actually works fine. Thank you very much. Yes. Amen. <laughs> and, you know, it, what is most interesting to me is that with the podcast, we've been doing this show for a year and a half. It always, no matter what topic we're talking about and which angle we come at it, it always goes back to find the information and make the right informed choices for you and stand up and advocate for those things because it's not cookie cutter and the system is not necessarily looking out for your best interest. Absolutely. And I, you know, I would say that about whether you decide that you want to have a home birth, a birth center birth or a hospital birth. Um, and, you know, it's also a question of asking the right questions. Like we were taught to fear birth in this country. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that my fourth labor was pretty painful, um, you know, and we don't have good mechanisms to deal with pain. Like if you're somebody who is terrified of pain, and you're afraid that you're not going to be able to get through it, that's something to talk about. That's something to ask about. You know, in Europe, I find this fascinating um, because the textbook, of course, was written in the United States. So many of the studies are done in our best universities. And then we ignore the best evidence and Europeans put it into practice. So in Europe, a woman in labor who's having trouble getting over her labor pains, they all the midwives are trained. I'm saying in Europe, but I know this for a fact in Norway. I don't know about other countries. I haven't been at births in every country in Europe. So let me rephrase that. Um, but they're trained in acupuncture. So they know how to do acupuncture for birth. They also know the importance of water therapy so that you can get in, you know, you can get into a warm tub, which can just be such a blessing for if you are having, you know, severe, if you're having trouble getting on top of the pain. Like what I'm saying is that there are all sorts of other ways to help you. It's not that you have to have, you know, a natural unmedicated childbirth and you have to do it yourself and you have to be strong. I mean, a lot of women say, but I'm not that strong. And then we can say, okay, well, let's figure out all the different things that can help you get through this exciting and difficult, I mean, you know, it's not called labor for nothing, um, process that aren't as invasive as getting, you know, a spinal anesthesia. And how, and don't have the risks that, that brings along with it. Exactly. Yeah. Jennifer, I know we're running out of time. What is the last thing you would like to leave the listeners with? Um, it, it's an absolutely hilarious thing to take a whole human being and squeeze them out your most private orifice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Birth is funny and it's also fun. And I think that's one thing that we forget is that, you know, whatever birth you have, what I hope for you is that you can keep your sense of humor and that you can have a lot of fun while you're doing it. So those are my final words. Fantastic. And if listeners want to know more about what you're doing and keep in touch with you, how can they do that? Uh, you can find me at www.jennifermargulis.net. 
You can um, read my book, Your Baby, Your Way, Taking Charge of Your Pregnancy, Childbirth, and Parenting Decisions for a Happier, Healthier Family. And I'm also very um, active on Facebook, so I've reached my friend limit of 5,000, but people are welcome to follow me on Facebook. I'm Jennifer Margulis, um, or you can join the Facebook community, which is called Your Baby, Your Way. Fantastic. And I am going to get you on Instagram yet. I will. <laughs> we will be following you there, too. I don't know how to use it, so yeah, you can help me get more active on Instagram. <laughs> that would be great. Fabulous. Thank you very much for this talk today. Thanks for all your time. Mighty Mamas, I love to hear from you. So share with me your thoughts, and if there's a certain topic you'd like to know more about, let me know. Stay in touch by following Birthful on Facebook or Twitter, or subscribe at birthful.com. A huge thanks to Natural Breastfeeding for sponsoring the show and to all the official friends of the show who helped me do this week after week. If you'd like to support the podcast and join my adventure in figuring out how to do things differently, then please go to patreon.com slash birthful. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>